So, coming back from the Ukraine, I'm struck by inhumane treatment that violates the United Nations Human Rights Charter on both sides. Matilda Bogner from the UN Human Rights uh, Monitoring Mission in the Ukraine says that there's credible information regarding the mistreatment of Russian prisoners by Ukrainian troops. And they are being, to quote, coerced to make statements, apologies and confessions. Coerced to make statements, apologies and confessions. And that's the Ukrainian side. The Russian side is doing the same thing. When the Azov regiment was finally marched out of Mariupol, the first thing they did, you can see this on YouTube, is to strip their uh, shirts off uh, to reveal their tattoos. Um, and the tattoos revealed the swastikas and SS markings and Hitler images on their skin, proving the narrative of the Russians that they were claiming to denazify Ukraine. On both sides, there are violence, treatment of prisoners. But a central core of that is the notion of confession, which brings us to our Pasha. And our Pasha, our Pasha in the beginning talks about the ritual of the Sota, a term for a woman suspected of adultery who must undergo a trial, an ordeal that will establish her guilt or innocence in our Pasha, Numbers 5, 11 to 31. And the Torah describes in detail the ritual, which must be performed by the priest in the tabernacle to determine whether a woman whose husband suspects her of adultery uh, is indeed guilty. Let's look at the Psukim. And Hashem spoke to Moshe saying, Speak to the Israelite people, any party whose wife has gone astray and broken faith with him. The Torah determines that a husband who suffers from a spirit of kina, kuf nun alev. Kuf nun alev is the spirit of jealousy. It's not just a legal case when a woman goes astray. It's a party whose wife has gone astray and another man has carnal relations with her and she keeps that secret but now he suspects a fit of jealousy comes over him and he is uh, wrought up about the wife who has defiled herself or in a fit of jealousy and he is brought up about his wife although she has not defiled herself so he doesn't know he can only suspect ish ish ki sister isho his wife has sista gone astray and then what does he do? The party, Vehevi Ha'ish Es Ishto Ela Kohen, he brings his wife to the priest. So a woman who repeatedly cheated on her husband, and he knows about it, or believes that he knows about it, uh, brings her to the Kohen. If he doesn't, there wouldn't be any ordeal. She was not caught in flagrante delicto, as the Catholic Church calls it. <laughs> in flagrante delicto, I love it because that would call for her death sentence. We know that, that's in the Torah. So she wasn't caught in the act, but instead he is suspicious. So she's brought to the priest and subject to the ordeal. Let's look at the next pericope. Then the priest takes this sacred water in an earthenware vessel. And after he has made the woman stand before God, 
He brings the offering. And then a very important statement. He now adjures the woman. Before she drinks the potion, he tells her what's going to happen if she confesses and if she doesn't confess. If she is guilty, the water will cause her belly to expand and to become infertile. Her thighs will fall and her belly distends. But if she doesn't and she confesses, very interestingly, what will happen to her? Nothing. Why? Well, there were no witnesses. And so she gets off scot-free. Well, not scot-free. I mean, she loses her ksuba and she cannot go back to her husband. But certainly she gets off scot-free. So his job, the hijbiya, his job in adjuring her, in fact, is to convince her to confess. Again, we're talking about confessions. In the Mishnah, however, the only existing accounts of the Sota ritual are a few places in Yuma and Edius, and so we can't allow any historical accounts of what happened after the Bible, even if we accept that the ritual was performed. What form did it take? Various descriptions of the ritual are preserved in the pre-Rabbinic compositions of Philo, Josephus, and the Qumran. And the changes that come from the Bible to the Mishnah and Gemara are ideological trends, but really there's no hint of actual familiarity. In fact, in the Mishnah, we're told in the name of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai that the ritual was discontinued because adulterers proliferated. <laughs> there was so much hanky-panky going on, there would be a long stream of Sota, so they just abolished the ritual in the, in the Mishnah in Sota 9.9. According to the Tosefta, he tells of its annulment. It wasn't that he did it. But the entire Mishnah and Gomorrah and Sota is devoted to the ritual, describing in the Mishnah significant differences from what we learn in our Parsha, much more so than the versions of Philo and Josephus. The ritual in the Mishnah contains stages of abasing and humiliation of the woman in public, and ends, unlike the Bible, with mere her distension of the belly, with her death in the temple. This harsh ritual is softened somewhat in the Mishnah with the adjuration of the priest in the following way. I can bring you the Midrash, and there is a softening of this horrific ritual by saying the following. He would say before her matters that she isn't deserving to hear the litany of complaints against her, neither she nor her family. Neither she nor her family. She's not worthy of hearing about the confessions of, of righteous men of earlier times. Kagon, Marse, Reuven, and Bilhar, like. Reuven and Bilha, what, what, what's going that? With the story of Masay Yehuda Vatomar. Shehoidu al Masayhem Boshu. They confessed and were not embarrassed to do so. Uh, now, wait a minute. We know about uh, Masay Yehuda and Tamar. That appears in Genesis 38. Yehuda goes out in Genesis 38 and finds a Zonah. And then 
when she's brought up before him as a judge, he says, Tzodkomimeni. She is more righteous than me because she holds up his signet ring and his belt, etc. So he is willing to undergo the humiliation in public as a Supreme Court justice, unlike some of ours, and say she is righteous, more righteous than me. So the priest kind of softens her up. And we brought this in Bamidbar Rabba 917. Divrei Agada. He tries to soften her up. Harbe Yayinose. Maybe you drank too much. Or that brought it. Or Omelefaneha Divrei Agada. He tells her stories. Maasim She'eru Biktuvim Arishonim. Things that were occurred in an era in the hoary past, in the early writings, like what happened to Reuven and what happened to Maase Yehuda. Now, Maase Yehuda, it's a very interesting development that we're told in the Talmud. Let me share the Gemara with you in Sota. The Gemara is troping on the problematic verses in the blessings of Moshe Rabbeinu. The blessings of Moshe Rabbeinu in Vezot HaBracha go as follows. Yechi Reuven va'al Yomos. So he's going through the list of the tribes according to the way they were set up in the in, in the wilderness. And it should go as follows. Reuven, Levi, Yehuda. Now look what, what it says in the Torah. Yechi Reuven, we say, we say this multiple times uh, before we get our scotch uh, on Simcha's Torah, right? Yechi Reuven ba'al yomos. May Reuven live and not die. Vihi misei but even though his numbers be few. Now, instead of going to Levi down here, he interjects out of order with Zois Yehuda. Vayome Shma Adonai Kol Yehuda. May God hear the voice of Yehuda. And restore him to his people. Yodo Ravlo Though his own hands strive for him, help him against his foes. And then he carries on with Levi. So this is what the Gemara is picking up on. The, the problematic sequence. And the Gemara says Azoi, which bears on our ritual. To Omer of Shmuel Omer of Nachmoni. May Reuven live and not die. And this is to Judah. So he's actually, in true Midrashic style, those dot, 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 there's a dot there. Zosli Yehuda is the next bracha, but he does not do that. He does not atomize the brachas in the psukim. He actually makes it a continuation. Yechi Reuven va'al yomos, may Reuven live and not die. Why? V'zosli Yehuda. Meaning, kol oson shonim shehoi Yisrael ba'midbar, all those years that Am Yisrael were in the wilderness, Remember when Joseph adjures them to take his bones, right? Behavi atzmosai itchem. It uses the word itchem. Rashi says, quoting the Tanhuma, that itchem means along with your bones, meaning all the brothers' bones were taken in their coffins out of Egypt. Itchem with your bones, not just mine alone. So the Aaron of Yosef was taken along with the Aaronot of the other tribes. Kol osashonim shehoi Yisrael ba'midbar, hoyu atzmosov shel Yehuda megulgalin ba'orom. 
The bones of Judah would rattle in the coffin, whereas the skeletal remains of all the others uh, would be fine. They would be fine. That is, the remains of the other sons were intact, but his bones rattled in the coffin. Why? Because we are told that when he told Jacob, you've got to let me go down back to Egypt and take Benjamin, he says something very interesting. He says that if he fails to take him back, that he will be banned for all time. All time. And the posse comes from Genesis 43.9. And in 43.9 he says, I will be his surety. I'll be his bond. I will be Benjamin's promise. You can seek that surety from me. If I don't bring him back to you, I will have sinned for you for all time. And Rashi says, even for the world to come. So it means that I will put myself, as the Gomorrah Makkah says, in Nidui. I'm not just making a nader. I'm not just making a promise for you. I'm putting myself under nidui, under excommunicative ban for this world and for all eternity. Now, the Gomorrah says that a person can't release himself from a nidui. Someone else has to release him. And so the Medrash here says, They were rolling around in his coffin. Until Moshe, at the end of the Torah, is seeking mercy for Judah. The reason the posuk of Reuven is next to Yehuda, Yehuda, Moshe uses that as an excuse to get the bones of Judah, meaning Judah out of excommunication, because even though he had fulfilled his promise. In fact, they were reunited. Jacob did see Benjamin. Some of Horshim, the Marshal in Makkah, says, well, he didn't bring him up to Jacob. Jacob had to go down to Egypt. So it, there was some aspect of the promise that was not fulfilled. Oh, so he's in, he's in excommunication, even though he fulfilled it. And no one to take him out. Until Moshe says, Ribbon now, listen to the argument. Who caused Reuben, who inspired Reuben, the eldest, to be moide about his father's bed? Now, you know the story that he moved his father's bed. And the, the Gemara says he actually had relations with Bilhah, not just he moved her bed. Who allowed Reuben, gave him permission, opened the way to this confession Yehuda, it was none other than Judah. Reuven confessed the sin of upsetting his father's bed only after observing Judah confess his sin in the high court in the incident of Tamar. So, <laughs> so that is what the rabbis say is the reason that the, the pasuk is out of sequence. It didn't go Reuven, Levi, Yehuda. It went Reuven, Yehuda, Yechi Reuven, Vayamos, 
Why? Because of this conversation in the three dots here that went on between Moshe and God, because Moshe heard the rattling of the bones of Joseph, because the bones of Joseph were rattling because of the ban imposed conditionally upon himself, requiring nullification, even if the condition is never fulfilled. And so even though Benjamin was returned to Jacob, Judah nonetheless becomes subject to his own ban because he had, never, he had not fully fulfilled it. And it comes along Moshe, Shema Hashem Kol Yehuda. I want you, God, to listen to the voice. What voice? The voice of the bones rattling in his coffin so he can find the final rest. Al Eivore Holosopha, his prayer was accepted. And Judah's limbs became Shafa. Now, Shafa means jointed. So they were disarticulated. They were, there was a dislocation of his joints, allowing them to rattle. Now they became jointed. And he found his final rest because Moshe is using him as the exemplar of confession. Now let's go back to the Kohen. What is the Kohen telling, telling the Soiter? The Kohen is telling the Soiter, listen, my dear, I want to tell you about the stories of ancient times. I want to tell you about Yehuda and Tamar and Reuven. Both of those are the exemplars of confession. So I want you to confess. And that's how he's uh, trying to convince her to confess so that she doesn't have to drink of the waters. Okay. By the way, what happens if she was raped? So the Natsiv says, it says, if a man has not lain with you conjugally, then you are off the hook. Or if he has lain with you, then you're not off the hook. Either way, you have to drink the waters to determine. It's a trial by waters. So the Natsiv, in his usual penetrating analytical way, says, what about if she was raped? What happens to a woman who's raped? So the Natsiv says, it doesn't say Imcha, but Oscha, which applies, it's not, he did not lie with you, but he raped you, possibly, which implies even against her will. Meaning, even if she had relations with her against her will, she would be permitted to her husband. Nevertheless, there is some smidgen of punishment because why did you seclude yourself with this man? It was inappropriate. So there is some cause of the matter because she went with him into a secluded place. It's a very interesting reading about motivation, right? She can claim, what are you talking about? I was raped. It was against my will. It wasn't something that I was seduced. Nevertheless, the whole point of this ritual is because he is suspecting her because she's hanging out in the wrong places. And so the Natsiv in a very articulate manner, says that includes rape, even though in a regular case, she would be a, a, available to return to her husband. So let's go back. The Medrash says, He tells her about the bitter waters, then says, he softens it. Bitty. They are considered like a potion. If you put hydrochloric acid or you put some very acidic lotion on your skin, as long as you don't have any wound, nothing will happen. But if you do have a lesion, 
Okay, so I'm spreading my lotion over me, but it's quite acidic. But now if I have a maka, matil chalchel, then it immediately burns. Af atah into hoiraat, if you're pure, notice the comparison between moral purity and the outer skin. If you are pure, nothing will happen to you. So that's an interesting marshal that he uses. Okay, now let's go back to these bones. I want to share with you a Rabbi Nachman. He makes this outrageous claim in the beginning of Lekutei Moran, and I'm bringing it because Aviva Zornberg in her book, Bewilderments, uh, her, her wonderful essay on uh, the Soita says, that this notion of confession is fraught with ambiguities. For the modern reader, it is shadowed by the literature of totalitarianism, by the Soviet show trials, by the Chinese culture of confession, and by the accounts ranging from Kessler's Darkness at Noon to Elaine Scarry's The Body in Pain. And I would add to the Ukrainian war. Confessions, we understand, serve political purposes. They may be extracted by torture by the Catholic Church, for sure. Even our, the greatest modern scientists who opened up Copernicus, etc., they were, they were tortured for their science. Or by more subtle pressure. Our modern suspicion of confession is not entirely allayed by our Midrashic narrative. The priest, by saying the Hijbiya Oso, is putting a kind of pressure on the Sota, and he says, you know, I don't want you to erase the holy name because part of the ritual is they take the holy name of God, the Yudke Vovke, they write it on a scroll and they dissolve it in the waters and they make her drink. That's part of the ritual. But there is a tone of tenderness in his address to the woman. He finds extenuating grounds. Maybe you got drunk. Maybe you're too young. And he speaks to the woman in a language she understands. The Gemara actually adds in every language that she could understand. She mustn't just speak it to in Hebrew. So he attempts to reach her by finding language that will open her to the possibility of language. And what is the argument? Well, after the mitigating factors, he goes into the other transgressors in the Bible who did not confess were swept away, like the Dor HaMabal. And then confessions of stories from ancient texts like Judah and Reuven. And he wants, according to Zornberg to teach her the complexity of her experience by telling stories of biblical heroes and their ability to acknowledge their sexual misdeeds, he makes a common reality with her and them of passionate error, of what we might call madness, which human beings, even beautiful human beings, are called to on to acknowledge. And so he evokes the spoken words of epic heroes to whom the ambiguities of sexuality were not foreign. By the act of confession, they reconstituted the name of God that their transgression had eroded. Now, remember, the whole issue of the ritual as a biblical ritual has been compared, certainly by Milgram and other scholars, it, that the biblical law adopted a foreign pagan institution in order to save women from public lynching which was the probable fate of a woman with a poor reputation as an adulteress. Not only that, Moshe Greenberg has shown that while most cultures perceived adultery as an offense against the husband, here in our parsha, the adultery is perceived as a religious transgression against God, and that's why we take God's name 
and dissolve it in the waters of the of 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 the mesota. So the mid the priest places the idea of confession in a different light. And here Zornberg is brilliant. To confess is to tell a story of fragmentation. It is to put on display that divided place where God is asked to absent himself, those dark corners where you meet surreptitiously, the fragmented consciousness that has made God effectively meaningless in the world now has two options, to speak itself without shame or to swallow the bitter waters. Which brings us to Rabbi Nachman. Let's read him. He takes this hyper-literally. Remember, the bones of Judah are rattling because of his self-imposed nidui. He has put himself excommunication because of whether he uh, accomplished his or not accomplished his task. He promised his father, I will ban myself forever. Now, Rabbi Nachman <laughs> takes that hyper-literally. And he takes the words of confession and the words of Nidor and makes this following absolutely outrageous claim. Avonosov shall Adam haim al atzmosov. Now where are you going to get such a statement like that? The sins of a man are engraved on his bones, on his skeleton. Remember there is a, uh, a Zoharic statement that the neshama is closer to the bones and the goof is related to the flesh. And the flesh goes away, but the bones stay much longer because the neshama is more connected to the bones, so they survive after death. Here he's troping on that and says, and the sins have an impact on his soul or on his bones. Kemoshe Kosov, and where is his proof text? That he, in fact... In Ezekiel says, when Ezekiel sees the valley of the dry bones, he sees that their sins are etched in their bones. So he's not out of left field. He is, in fact, quoting hyper-literally the valley of the vision of the dry bones, Ezekiel 32. Okay, now he goes, he goes more metaphorical and Kabbalistic. Every Avera, Yeshlot Seirus Osios. Every Avera has a permutation of holy letters. So, for instance, the word Oneg is pleasure, as our rabbi tells us often, and you can switch it around and it becomes Nega. Oneg, Ein, Nun, Gimel, Nega, Nun, Gimel, Ein. That's what he's talking about here. Everything has its root in the Torah and in the Hebrew letters of Torah. So when you make an Avera, the Tseruf, this wrong mispermutation, is now on his bones. Okay. So now, this, he then says, is what it means in our Midrash. He brings our Midrash to tell you the proof text that the sins of the person are chakuk on the bones because the atzmos of Shel Yehuda were, in fact, gulgalin, that they were rattling. Moshe asked from God that 
Interesting, because that's not what the Gemara says. So the Gemara says, I want you to remember who gave Reuven his inspiration to do the convict to, to do the confession. Here, Reb Nachman says he reminded God that in fact he had confessed. He had confessed. So Vazer Dafka of Megalglin. So he focuses in on well the lack of confession, the guilt of his sin remained with him, and it was etched in his bones. And that's why they were in fact Megalgalin. They were in fact uh, rolling about. Rav Nachman is doing something absolutely amazing. He is talking about a the context of the adulterer's power to absent God from the arena of human actions. Why? Because it's the sins of a human being that are etched on his bones. And then repression goes only so far. It is now imprinted in his body a malign combination of letters that skews his version of the experience. So the transgression has left an impression etched in the bones. It has left traces, traumatic residues, this bone knowledge, this rattling of the bones. The bones are reminding us is a kind of language with its own fantasy structure. And so confession then, what the adjurer, the Kohen is adjuring the girl, the adult potential adulteress, in trying to convince her to confess, is brought full circle through the rattling bones of, uh, of Reb Nachman. This movement reconstitutes meaning and beauty. He presents the cases of Judah and Ruvain to show the abject, tragic dimension of the narrative. The Judah's bones rattling in his coffin, a macabre post-mortem history. Judah's bones are dislocated to signify the radical effects of his transgressions, and his confession inspires Reuven. The contagious power of the confession. And Judah's mastery is affirmed when he acknowledges in court, in the high court, Sodkobimeni. I want to end up just with this um, frame from the Oxford group, which became in fact, the inspiration for Alcoholics Anonymous and became eventually the fifth step. Step five of AA. We admitted to God, ourselves, and another human being the exact natures of our wrongs. Without step five, there could be no healing. In step four, you did a moral inventory and you did a confession of your sins. Confession, confidence, same word. But in step five, we admit to God, ourselves, and another human being the exact natures of our wrongs. So you can see how confession has taken a long road and it has been used in positive ways. Of course, uh, modern sensibilities are very upset about the Sota, questioning the representation of femininity and the tractate Sota's attitude to it has arisen in all its modern mind, the extreme character of the ritual, the essential inequality have led to different ways of coping with it, ranging from apologetics to severe criticism. It has also inspired various artistic treatments like the play Sota, created and performed by the Jerusalem Theatre Company 1999 and the journal Elu Elu, a publication of a Beit Midrash in Jerusalem dedicated to examining the tractate Sota from critical feminist and modern viewpoints. We do not want to discredit the feminist 
criticism because of how one-sided this ritual is. But what I wanted to bring out today, as I started with, was how confession has its bright side and its dark side. The bright side opens us to the radical reframing in our own recovery, in our own ways of dealing with our past and our hurts done to other people and other people hurts done to us and in terms of cleaning the slate or what we would call in Musa Cheshbona Nefesh. But of course, in its political way, as we see it in front of our eyes, the way people are being forced through torture to confess. May we all make use of this double-sided bracha, the bracha and the klala, in our own spiritual journey. Have a wonderful week.